We are returning this morning to our Romans on Paul's epistle to the, our series on Paul's epistle to the Romans, and we are in chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. Uh, before we turn to God's holy and errant word, let us go to the Lord asking the Lord to bless our reading and hearing of his word. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. Shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through our Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. As we come to our text in Romans 3, I want to start by acknowledging that the Christian faith includes a great mystery. For we believe in and worship a God who is transcendent and beyond our capacity to fully comprehend. Scripture gives us an abundance of passages about the infinite greatness of God. And Paul himself later in Romans states, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So while God reveals himself to us, condescending to us that we may know him in a saving manner and lay hold of him by faith, in many ways we will never fully grasp God and we will never fully understand his purposes. Nor should we. Any God that we can wrap our minds around is no God at all. For it is a God who is smaller than we are. 
But this leaves us in a bit of a conundrum, right? How then are we to express our faith? How, how are we to use words which by nature are limited expressions to describe a God who is far beyond our ability to comprehend? As Reformed theologian T.F. Torrance states, On the one hand, faith is characterized by a certainty of conviction which derives its force from the truth of God thrust upon it. But on the other hand, faith is characterized by an open, ever-expanding, semantic focus which answers to the unfathomable mystery and inexhaustible nature of God. There's a hymn entitled, God, the Spirit, Guide, and Guardian, which I chose for my ordination service years back that I think expresses this idea very well. The last Verse says this, triune God, mysterious being, undivided and diverse, deeper than our minds can fathom, greater than our creeds rehearse. Help us in our varied callings, your full image to proclaim, that our ministries uniting may give glory to your name. And this is where Paul is as we move into chapter 3. As he anticipates arguments to the truths he is presenting about God and his righteous judgment. He is under the direction of the Holy Spirit expressing a great mystery of our faith. Articulating how God is faithful despite the unfaithfulness of his covenant people. And I have a sense that Paul probably didn't particularly want to have to put these mysteries into words. But he knew that these truths that had been entrusted to him needed to be clarified in order to be kept from misinterpretation and misunderstanding. The ditches that lead to destruction along either side of the path of God's righteousness needed to be identified and avoided. By the way, this is the same daunting task that the authors of the historic creeds of the church have faced, although... They weren't writing God's infallible word. Nevertheless, the Nicene Father Hillary said this concerning the task of crafting doctrine in the early church. We are compelled by the error of heretics and blasphemers to do what is unlawful, to scale heights, to express things that are unutterable, to encroach on forbidden matters. And when we ought to fulfill the commandments through faith alone, adoring the Father, worshiping the Son together with Him, rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, we are forced to stretch the feeble capacity of our language to give expression to indescribable realities. We are constrained by the error of others to err ourselves in the dangerous attempt to set forth in human speech what ought to be kept in the religious awe of our mind. As Paul has been revealing the universal nature of humanity's condemnation before the judgment seat of God here at the beginning of Romans, he has come to a point in his argument that he now faces a serious challenge from the Jewish people. And we are faced with what many commentators consider the most difficult passage in all of Romans. If you recall, Paul has said earlier in chapter 2 that God shows no partiality in his judgment. Both Jews and Gentiles alike are guilty before God. By the end of chapter 2, Paul is drawn into question the adequacy of the Mosaic covenant since the Jews failed to keep the Mosaic law. 
And he concludes chapter 2 by saying that the circumcision that is of true importance is the inward circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. And so here comes the challenge. Well, if we are condemned alongside the Gentiles, if we have no privilege as God's chosen people, then what is the advantage of being a Jew? Any Jewish person reading or hearing Paul's argument has to be thinking of the history of God's people. They have to have in mind the calling and promise to Abraham. They have to be remembering the deliverance of God's people from Egypt under Moses and the giving of the law and the entrance into the promised land under Joshua. They have to be thinking about the rule of David and the promise of his lineage. Is this really your teaching, Paul? was God's election of Israel all for nothing. And based on Paul's previous arguments, one might expect Paul to answer this question of what advantage has the Jew by saying none. There is no advantage to being a Jew. But notice here how Paul keeps his audience from drawing false conclusions from what he has been saying. Paul here makes a very clear distinction concerning the privilege of being Jewish. Look at what he says. What is the advantage? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul has established that the Jews have no advantage over the Gentiles in terms of judgment, but it does not mean that they have not had any advantages over the Gentiles. Paul will give a much fuller list of these advantages in chapter 9 when he returns to this issue in a much fuller detail. But for now, Paul simply lists one advantage. They have the word of God. This isn't just the law which has revealed what is required for righteousness before God but it does not enable obedience. But it is also including the promises of God for the redemption of his people. And this is exactly what Paul wants to draw to the forefront of the minds of his audience. Before we can examine what Paul has to say concerning God's promises to Israel, though, let's take a moment to consider the advantage of God's word in general. Because Paul is placing a focus on scripture here that contains a very powerful statement about the place of God's word in the lives of those who claim to be the people of God. Sometimes I wonder if the availability of God's word to us here in America has caused its trivialization. And we, mistaking it for the mundane, have taken it for granted. There are probably more Bibles and homes across our country than any other book, but it seems to be one of the least read. What other book can you find in the bedside tables of pretty much every hotel in America? A recent study by Lifeway Research and Ligonier Ministries has shown that many self-proclaimed evangelical Christians are, at best, reading the Word of God with very little attentiveness to understand what it is saying, and at worst, not reading it at all. This is especially troubling since claiming not just to be Christian but also evangelical inherently means that there is a commitment to the good news. So what is the place of God's word in our lives? Do we treasure it? Is it more desired than the finest gold? Is it sweeter to us than honey? 
If so, how is it being demonstrated in our lives? Are we reading it regularly? Are we taking intentional steps to understand it? I remember being particularly gripped several years ago by a book written by an American pastor who had traveled to meet with some house church leaders in Asia. And he recalled how a short Bible study he had prepared for their first meeting evolved into an eight-hour study session. Which could have gone on longer had the leaders not needed to return home that evening. So they pleaded with him to meet again beginning early the next morning. And they did walking and riding their bikes from miles away to study together under the threat of severe persecution if discovered. This continued for 10 more days as they gathered for 8 to 12 hours a day to study God's word. They were, in the words of this pastor, hungry for the word of God. Not long after I read this book, a Turkish friend of mine asked me to pray for believers in his country and surrounding countries. And he told me a story about individuals who, risking persecution, were walking for hours under the cover of darkness and even through underground tunnels to meet with fellow believers to worship and study God's word in secret. And why would they not risk their lives and walk up? hours upon hours and sit in dark, cramped rooms for days on end to read the Word of God. Think about it. God has spoken to us. Let it sink in because I know how normal it seems that we have Bibles in front of us right now. The God who is eternal, who dwells in light inaccessible, who has spoken all of creation into being, has spoken to us. Is there a more supreme privilege? You want to know what advantage you have? God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, has spoken to you. He has given you his word. He has trusted you with his message. But listen to the warning the prophet Amos gives to God's people who have neglected this precious gift and have turned away from relationship with God. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. You want to know what's worse than not having food and drink? You want to know what's worse than the threat of persecution and even death? Not having the word of God. Do you believe it? How convicting it is to hear of the great lengths people will go to receive God's word as though their lives depended upon it when we have it readily available to us and we allow it to be neglected. But how wonderful God's providence that we are here in Romans 3 at the beginning of a new year being given a reminder that God's word is precious. Dearly beloved, commit yourself. Commit yourself to reading, studying, meditating on, memorizing, treasuring God's word this year. It is far more important than any other commitment you might make as we begin a new year. And a little word of encouragement, Don Whitney reports in his book on spiritual disciplines that it takes on average 70 hours to read through the Bible. This is less time than the average American spends in front of the television per month. 
If you simply replaced your television watching with reading the Bible, you could read through the whole Bible in less than four weeks, which means you can read through the Bible 12 times this year. Paul here is reminding the Jewish people the preciousness of God's word, especially the promises it contains for those who are God's people. But this is problematic, isn't it? Well, which is it, Paul? Do the Jews have a special place in God's plan as those he has chosen? Are the Jews the recipients of God's promised salvation as members of God's covenant? Or are they no different than the Gentiles being condemned for their sin? So what if there are some of God's people who have been unfaithful? What if God's people have failed to live up to his righteous standard and have betrayed the covenant? Does their faithlessness to the covenant nullify the covenant faithfulness of God? Are you saying, Paul, that the promises of God are null and void? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Let us not miss what Paul is ever so subtly implying. The fact was that there weren't just some who had been unfaithful to the covenant. Both in their disobedience to the law and in their failure to believe in the ways in which God was fulfilling his promises. Likewise, nor was this seemingly hypothetical phrase about God being true even if everyone were a liar merely hypothetical. Paul has been revealing in chapter 2 how none will be saved by obedience to the law. If God is true, if he is to be true to his word, if he is to be faithful to provide salvation promised in the covenant, then it will solely be by a miraculous and gracious work of God. It will be despite the faithlessness of the many. This is the Jews' only hope. And make no mistake, God will fulfill his promises. Human disobedience will not thwart God's plans. Paul will lay out in greater detail how all of this applies to the Jewish people in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans. But for the time being, Paul's point is to emphasize God's faithfulness despite the Jewish people's faithlessness. I hope that you see that this passage is drawing into sharp relief this contrast. One of my favorite lines from any Christmas hymn is from Joy to the World. One of the verses says this, and you know it. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. This verse is articulating an undoing of the curse of the fall in Genesis 3, where even the ground is cursed by thorns and thistles by the broken relationship between God and humanity. But think about the depth of what's being said here. Far as the curse is found. I do not think it's merely referring to the undoing of the curse in all creation. It's also about how the curse is being undone. This is a statement about God becoming fully human in Jesus Christ that in him, humanity in its fullness might be taken up and redeemed. In other words, it's not simply our flesh, our physicality that is assumed by Jesus. He's not simply God with a human body. 
Our bodies are not the issue. Sin and rebellion to God manifests in our bodies, but it it originates in our will. This is what has been corrupted. Scripture affirms that Jesus was like man in every way, meaning that he had a human will. As Gregory of Nazianzus puts it, the unassumed is the unredeemed. Any aspect of humanity that is not taken up in Jesus Christ could not have been redeemed by him. So God in Jesus Christ is truly fully human. Everything that it means to be human, Jesus is far as the curse is found. But it doesn't stop there. When we're thinking about God's redemptive work in Jesus Christ, I think it's important to acknowledge that God accomplishes his redemptive and reconciling purposes through Jesus Christ by confronting humanity at its absolute worst. Hear this. This is important for this passage. God confronts humanity in Jesus Christ at its absolute worst. Worse, sin at its deepest, humanity's rejection of God at its, at its extreme. And what is that point? It is the people of God, Israel, not only rejecting God, but being faced with God incarnate and putting him to death. Far as the curse is found. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. The ways of God are both amazing and mysterious that God would, through Israel's rebellion and rejection, bring about the redemption for all humanity. But even as Paul begins to point his audience to this truth, he slips in this quote from Psalm 51, where David is confessing his sin before God and acknowledging that God is just and righteous for any judgment he brings against David for his affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. You see, there was a presumption among the Jews that God's righteousness guaranteed Israel immunity from judgment. Perhaps this is not unlike the presumption that many professing Christians who assume God's salvific purpose and promises apply to them simply because they've walked down an aisle, said a prayer, had water poured on their head, but who otherwise have never submitted their lives to Jesus Christ. Paul here reminds his audience that God is also faithful when he punishes the sin of his people. Because ultimately, God's righteousness is his commitment always to act in accordance with his own holy character, which requires him to respond to sin with wrath. With respect to Israel and the old covenant, God vows to uphold his promises to them, but the covenant not only promised to bless Israel if they obeyed, but to punish them if they disobeyed. So as one commentator puts it, The saving righteousness of God does not exclude the judging righteousness. Even though God has promised salvation to the Jews, no individual Jew could presume upon those promises and think that he or she was guaranteed salvation. God is still just and righteous when he judges sin among the Jews, for no individual is automatically granted God's covenantal mercies. And although you might be realizing how complicated this passage is, how nuanced Paul's argument has become as he has moved through this indictment against all humanity to now focus on Israel in particular, I hope that you also are seeing what Paul is doing here. 
In very short order, Paul is about to lay out explicitly how God has dealt with the sin of all humanity. Offered forgiveness and reconciliation and maintained his righteousness. But Paul is first demonstrating that the old covenant is deficient. He's revealing the need for a new covenant, a covenant which is superior in every way, a covenant for which the old covenant is but a shadow, a covenant which will be sealed in the blood of his only begotten son, on whom God will place the curse of disobedience and on whom the wrath of God will be poured out for the atonement of the sins of the many. And because Paul has just stated that God's faithfulness to uphold his covenant, to be merciful, is not dependent on human faithfulness, but is accomplished even in spite of human faithlessness. And because Paul is about to lay out in full detail what he has already alluded to back in chapter 1, when he stated that the gospel is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Paul now addresses what everyone who is truly proclaiming the gospel will sooner or later be forced to address. Antinomialism. Anti-law. The argument Paul faces goes something like this. If God uses my sin and disobedience to bring about his good purposes and for his own glory, then I should just keep sinning and sin all the more that God's grace and glory may abound. The argument in our day might go something like this. If my salvation or damnation is entirely dependent on God's sovereign choice, regardless of my actions, then I will just do whatever I want in this life. This is a very serious misunderstanding and incorrect response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember now, Paul is addressing the Jews here in chapter 3. The Jews were not antinomians. But apparently, according to this passage, some were accusing Paul of teaching this gospel. Think about how Paul would be received by the Jewish community if word spread that he had no concern for moral righteousness. The gospel he was proclaiming would be severely damaged. This is what Paul is addressing in verses 5 through 8. But we see that it's a multifaceted issue. For when one starts to draw out what seem to be the logical conclusions from this Pauline gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, one can arrive at many false conclusions, which the Jewish objectors use to reject the validity of Paul's gospel. For instance, in verse 5, the objection goes, if we are incapable of contributing to our own salvation and are fundamentally corrupt, then... Is God not unrighteous to inflict his wrath on us? This is the same line of logic used in verse 7. Why am I condemned for something I have no control over? By the way, these objections will reappear later in chapter 9. Anyhow, perhaps you have heard an argument like this before. I have. What do you mean it's not... Our decision to come to the Lord. What do you you mean that it's God's sovereign choice over us? It isn't fair for God to judge someone who didn't have a choice. Martin Lloyd-Jones states that a very good test to see whether you are preaching the gospel in the right way is if you have been charged with antinomianism. Paul is repulsed by this objection in verse 5, though. Look at what he says. Certainly not. And he adds a comment to this objection, I speak in a human way. 
To say that is unfathomable, especially as finite creatures, to even question God's righteousness. God is by his very nature righteous. But Paul is also going to refute this logic. He states that if these objections were correct and God were just for judging the Jewish people for their sin because of their inability, not judging the Jewish people for their sin because of their inability to obey, then the same would apply to the Gentiles. Paul asks, for then how could God judge the world? While universal salvation might be accepted by many today, the idea that all the world would be saved, including the Gentiles, was unthinkable to the Jews of Paul's day. For in this, for if this were the case, if no one were judged, the covenant with Israel would mean nothing in the end. As biblical scholar Thomas Schreiner states, if Gentiles would escape the judgment, the covenant made with Israel would mean nothing at all. Their whole history as God's elect people would be an illusion and a mockery. Paul's argument then is an effective one. Paul ends this passage by saying that all who misconstrue the gospel he is proclaiming are justly condemned. And so as I conclude, I want us to return to the importance of God's word in our lives. Second Peter ends in this way. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these... Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do with the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Dearly beloved, there are matters in Scripture which are Hard to understand, as Peter acknowledges. God, after all, is far beyond our comprehension. But let us strive to lay hold of the promises given to us in his word. Let us commit ourselves to knowing them and understanding them to the best of our ability. And when they exceed our understanding, let us trust in the truth of these mysteries, not seeking to reduce them to our human logic, twisting them to our own destruction. But instead, let us give thanks to God for his great mercy to us in Jesus Christ. And let us proclaim unashamedly this gospel of radical grace, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have come to us in Jesus Christ, far as the curse is found. Lord, and you have redeemed us just as you have promised to. Lord, enable us to lay hold of those promises even as they have laid hold of us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.
Amen. Now, having the word, having heard the word of God read and proclaimed, let us stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty. Almighty. 